gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice, are the most powerful forces of good ever assembled. Superman! Batman and Robin! with their space monkey, Bleak. Dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 105 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, this is going to be my penultimate episode covering the all-new Super Friends Hour, season two of the overall Super Friends cartoon. And in this episode, I'm going to be covering the stories, The Tiny World of Terror, and the Mummy of Nazca. There will be more Superman coverage beyond that with uh, the Beast of Exra and Tibetan Raiders in the first segment of the show, and then there will be another Superman segment, Superman and, and Aquaman in Frozen Peril. So more uh, Superman adventures than, uh, I guess, normal, you can say. There was some. There was very little uh, extra Superman last week, and but there was some a couple weeks ago, and there's going to be some this week, so... This is, like I mentioned, this is the penultimate episode of this format, so I will have one more episode like this next week, and then the format of the show will change again to accommodate for Season 3, The Challenge of the Super Friends. And I will talk more about the format change when I begin coverage of that season. But first, I have some feedback to address. The usual email is coming from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode number 95, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. All I can say about the Ultra Beam is that Hank and Ben, with their fixation on eliminating gold, have a ridiculously limited view of economy. There are many other valuable minerals, including silver, platinum, diamonds, and other gems, as well as the metals they were, quote-unquote, creating, like copper and iron. So eliminating gold would not remotely eliminate greed. In Menace of the White Dwarf, I was surprised that no one tried to contact the Atom, Dr. Ray Palmer, who must be the world's foremost expert on white dwarfs, since his size and weight controls were based on white dwarf matter. Beyond that, I was glad to see the deference and respect the characters give to Superman in this episode. In those days, Superman was unquestionably the premier hero in the DC Universe, respected by everyone from common citizens to the highest political and military authority. I like this view of Superman myself, and I'd love to see a little more of it in modern interpretations of the character. I don't know if that will happen, and I'm sure we'll never see a return to the Silver Age level of respect for him, but I think we could stand to move a bit in that direction. Thanks, as always, for a fun episode. Live long and prosper. Dave. Again, thank you, Dave, for writing in. I really don't have much to add to his comment on the Ultra Beam regarding, aside from saying he is absolutely right about the various other metals. But I do want to address the, uh, you know, the, the comment uh, Dave made about Superman being the premier hero of the DC Universe, respected by everyone from common citizens to the highest political and military authorities. I want to unpack that a little bit. I have no problem, and obviously I encourage writers to have, you know, the government respect Superman. You know, not treat him like a threat, as they were doing, especially in the New 52, and even the modern, uh, even the uh, post-Definite Crisis columns before the full-blown New 52 reboot about seven years ago. There was a theme in the comics of that time of how scary it, it would be to have somebody with Superman's abilities in on the planet. And while I can see that, I do believe the Silver Age was a little too far as far as respect to Superman goes, 
to the point where government officials would let him make policy. If Superman told the President of the United States to do something, the President of the United States tended to trip over himself to do what Superman says, because that's for the good of everybody. I don't mind them having respect for Superman, but and I don't mind seeing the military authorities have respect for Superman's abilities and what he brings to the table, but I don't exactly want them rolling over and playing dead for them. You know, back in the Silver Age, whenever Superman barked, the president would fall on the floor with his feet up in the air. You know, fulfilling the, uh, you know, I surrender to your wisdom and authority position. That I don't really care for. I prefer humans uh, being in control of human things, and I don't mind Superman uh, making recommendations to them and giving his opinion based on his expertise. But I don't always like seeing uh, humans roll over for Superman. A healthy respect is good. Letting Superman just run the show is not... I don't know how many times in the George Reeves show we've seen Superman just make suggestions and the president say, well, if it was anyone but you, I wouldn't. Well, they should even vet the things that Superman asked them to, you would you would think at least, right? And I think the modern comics are moving back toward placing Superman back in as kind of the preeminent figure in the uh, DC universe. Obviously, Batman has become the most popular character over the past several decades, but, you know, Superman is still there. Superman is still relevant. And Superman, despite what, you know, some people believe, Superman is still a big moneymaker for uh, DC Comics and Warner Brothers. So, you will not find me in one of those camps saying, uh, sideline Superman so others can have their movies. I, I don't mind seeing letting the others have their movies, but Superman needs to have his day, too. He is still the preeminent character of the DC Universe. In my opinion, if you don't have Superman, you don't have a DC Universe. I'm sure fans of the Arrowverse will dispute that, but and they're welcome to, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I don't need to see Superman on any of those shows, but I need him to exist in that universe. It's about time they had some kind of crisis and merged Earth-1 and Earth-38. Just saying. So, with that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with Tiny World of Terror and the episode that's around it. Hang around, folks. In the annals of television history... There are TV shows and characters that changed our culture and helped define generations. These are not those shows. It's time to close up the bar, leave the war, and quit your yuppie whining so you can step on board the Enterprise D, run alongside the Hoff, stop time with your fingers, and introduce your family to the voice input child identikit. Because this summer, Pop Culture Affidavit is taking you to the depths of 80s and 90s television with. It came from syndication! For seven weeks, I'll be taking a look at a variety of syndicated TV genres, from the lauded science fiction of Star Trek The Next Generation to the... This was a show? Of small wonder. Along the way, we'll battle with the Thundercats, run through the funhouse, give thumbs up at the movies, and have a very current affair. Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It came from syndication! Coming July 11th, to popcultureaffidavit.com and two true freaks.com. Oh, 
All right, welcome back, folks. All of the episodes of this segment never had an original broadcast date of November 24th, 1977. And we're going to start with The Tiny World of Terror. And our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. At the Metropolis Science Institute, while Professor Wong and Mary Nelson want to use the successful shrinking ray for the benefit of all, Professor Strickland wants to be rich. We have done it, Mary. Our Niklaniscope is a complete success, capable of shrinking anything down to minute size. With this invention, we'll all be millionaires. How can you think of money, Professor Strickland? This invention is for the benefit of mankind. It alone can solve the energy crisis or the food shortage. No, this invention will not be used for personal gain. We will turn it over to the people of the world to use as they see fit. Those fools. I've worked too hard on this invention to give up my rewards. You underestimate me, Professor Wong. Now I will use the machine as I see fit. I think you both need a long vacation. At a place called Devil's Pond. Strickland, you're mad. You don't know what you're doing. You won't get away with this. Oh, won't I? Would you like to use the phone to call for help? <laughs> When the Super Friends investigate at the lab, Strickland tries to make them believe that Wong and Nelson finished and left. Let's hope the computer can find a clue on this ledger page. Electron scan indicates Professor Wong's fingerprints and some dust. Radiation analyzer is picking up a high concentration of nucleonic beam particles. That could be from the test they were doing on the miniature car. No wonder, woman, the concentration is too high. That means the beam had to have been aimed near the ledger. And at the professor and his assistant. Jupiters! They both must have been shrunk down to ant size. I'm going to program the computer to enlarge the page on the area where the writing trails off. Strickland, Devil's Pond. Just as I thought. One of them wrote a message after they were shrunk. Then it was Strickland who shrunk them. If they're at Devil's Pond, they're in great danger, and finding them will be like looking for a needle in a haystack. There's only one chance. Shrink ourselves down and search the area. There's no time to lose. The team shrinks itself to find Wong and Nelson, only to be caught by Strickland, who takes Superman and Wonder Woman prisoner in a steel box. The others struggle through Devil's Pond, but make it back to the Institute, where they are later joined by Superman and Wonder Woman, who manage to drive off in the van holding the shrinking ray. Strickland is captured, and everyone is returned to normal size. I do not know how we'll ever repay you for your help. Just use your machine unselfishly, Professor. For the benefit of all. I hate to think of how Strickland would have used the machine. Strickland was overcome with greed. And when people let greed take over, their minds become clouded as to what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> Looks like Gleek brought his lunch. <laughs> One thing you can't shrink is Gleek's appetite. <laughs> okay, this is kind of an episode of Honey, I Shrunk the Superheroes. It involves the, uh, actually it involves the superheroes willingly shrinking themselves in order to find uh, the missing scientist. And I'll go into that, a little, into that a little bit later when I talk about the episode, but 
It just seems like a bad idea. With Superman's abilities and his awesome vision powers, I have no doubt that a full-size Superman could have found them unless he's scientists without a, much of a problem. But this episode needs adventure, and what more adventure could you ask for than being shrunk to an eighth of an inch or smaller? So you are fighting with the ants. So we start off with scientists who have developed a way to shrink things and return them to size, you know, back and forth. I feel as though we've seen this before, and there was an episode in a previous season which involved shrinking the Super Friends. And I'm not remembering that episode title off the top of my head. So Professor Wong announces that the item is, is a success, and Professor Strickland is thinking about the financial benefits, while the other two are, think, are looking to the benefit humanity by solving the oil crisis or the food shortages. Basically, they're planning either to shrink people or to enlarge food to prevent Earth's resources from running out. So Professor Strickland turns the ring on Wong and Mary Nelson so that he can reap the financial reward, and I wonder if they couldn't just patent the machine and make millions that way, and they kind of turn it over to whoever it needed turning over to. I'm sure, you know, whoever took control of it, maybe the government, maybe some other company would have paid millions for such a machine, but you know, they all could have been uh, financially independently wealthy going forward, but nope. Professor Strickland wants to do it the, the criminal way, and he probably wants all the credit for himself. So, in comes the expo expositional phone call. Professor Wong and his assistant, Mary Nelson, have vanished without a trace, Batman. Holy microbes! Wasn't Professor Wong working on a top-secret shrinking device? That's right. His associate, Professor Strickland, is at the Institute now, trying to help us with any information he may have. We'll get on it immediately. With Zan on the case, the professor and his assistant are as good as found. By the way, where's Gleek? Gleek! Here, Gleek! Oh, I'm sure you'll find him, Sherlock. Robin asks, Was the Professor Wong working on a top-secret shrinking device? How does Robin know about this if it's so top-secret? What kind of security clearance does a teenager in short pants and winged shoes have that he knows these things? Maybe Batman has the high security clearance and told Robin about it. Again, what kind of security clearance do you give a man in a bat costume? And you should be concerned about him sharing it with the boy in the short pants and the winged shoes. Just saying. And the man on the screen doesn't bat an eye. He's like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, he verifies everything that Robin said. As if Robin was supposed to have the clearance to know about this top secret shrinking device. It's not very top secret if a teenager knows about it. Ugh, that kind of stuff drives me nuts. <clears throat> so Batman and Robin uh, go to the Institute with uh, the twins. And this is in Metropolis. So the first question becomes, where is Superman? You know, he is a part of this show. The twins find the book that Wong was writing in when he was shrunk. And they take it back to the Hall of Justice. You know, Strickland is chiding them as he leaves, saying that they won't find any, anything in that ledger, but they do. But they do find something. The uh, Hall of Justice computer, which is always helpful to move the plot along, detects radiation on the page, which indicates that the beam was fired at them. The shrinking beam, that is. So, Wonk and Mary wrote a message to say that they were going to Devil's Pond. Apparently, Strickland shrunk a pencil with them as well. So, like I said, here we go into an episode of uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Scientists, and it's kind of amusing watching Mary and, uh, Dr. Wong runs from a turtle, and they're running full speed away from this thing. Yeah, it's slow, you know, by our standards, but with their tiny legs, even a tortoise can catch up to them. So now the Super Friends are going to shrink themselves to find Wong and Nelson, and I wonder, you know, can't Superman just use his microscopic vision to find them in Devil's Pond, you know, like I mentioned before? You know, he has every other superpower in 1977. Doesn't he have that one as well? I mean, it's just an offshoot of his telescopic vision. What do you think about Superman's telescopic vision and his microscopic vision? They're basically the same power. Except he uses one to look far away into other solar systems, and the other is to look at things right in front of him that could be microscopic size. Shrinking themselves just does not seem to be the best use of their time. 
And while they're there, Batman and Robin encounter a mouse, which next to them looks huge. But Jaina turns into a cat, but forgot that she was shrunk and she became a tiny cat. You know, something this mouse could eat. You know, if this girl can morph into a quote-unquote brontosaurus, we really don't say brontosaurus anymore, couldn't she have morphed into, you know, a large cat? Something that was larger than the mouse? Or maybe she could only transform to scale, I guess. But still, there are plenty of animals that she could have transformed into that could have taken this this mouse. And it is amusing watching the Super Friends combat ordinary characters because they're so tiny. But again, it's hard to imagine that they're not performing any acts of violence to do it. (coughs) Just a lot of throwing and roping. So Strickland is told that the Super Friends were looking for him, and he goes after them, the Devil's Pond. I guess he's just assuming that they shrunk themselves to look for the scientists. And I'm going to mention, and you know, they do almost find them, but don't. There is one shot of the Batmobile where we see them drive right by uh, Dr. Wong and Mary. But right before Wonder Woman's invisible jet, I believe Wonder Woman is in her invisible jet at this time, but she is, either way, she is down by a bee. And one, the Super Friends have really done themselves a disservice by shrinking themselves, as now they have to save not only themselves with Wong and Mary, but now they're under attack by a giant trapdoor spider. Now you would think that it's big and ugly. I mean, you would think it's okay to punch big and ugly things that look like monsters, but nope, it is not okay to punch a spider. You would think it would be, especially after a throw of Superman, but nope. Instead, we're going to the rodeo, and the spider is playing the role of the Bucky Bronco with Superman mounted on top of it. So after all this, uh, they are caught. Superman and Wonder Woman are caught by uh, Strickland, and they are put into some kind of suitcase or valise, and Batman and Robin are going to drive back to the Institute in the shrunken Batmobile. Imagine how long of a drive back to the Institute that is in the Batmobile that's shrunk. That's got to be like driving cross-country. I don't even know how far Devil's Pond is from, from Metropolis for full-size people. But however it is for them, it must be miles longer for a shrunk, for shrunken people. For those of you who remember Hunting I Shrunk the Kids, the uh, nerd character, I, be- I believe his uh, name was Nick. He was the science uh, wizard of the group. He pulled out his little calculator that was shrunk along with him, and he kind of calculated based on his height and, I guess, how big the yard was, how far away they were from the house, and they... You know, it was a, like a little city yard. It couldn't be more than a quarter of an acre at the most. But they had to walk almost three miles to get to the house. I don't think they wound up walking all that way, but, you know, that's... When you think about a quarter of an acre, which is just kind of a two-minute walk from house to the to the end of the sidewalk, if that, think of how long it takes to walk three miles undisturbed, you know, on a straight road. Then add all the time that it takes to deal with basically an entire ecosystem because... All the insects are three times the size that you are, so you're fighting monsters while you're in there, too. And the red ants and the dust devils that Batman and Robin run into are causing them all kinds of trouble because they're tiny. And Batman tries to get away on a bat balloon, and it snaps, and they crash into the water, and all of a sudden they're surrounded by giant water bugs. Which is enough to give me the creeps. I hate uh, insects, especially giant ones. And water bugs are not a favorite of mine. When I lived in my parents' house, I had uh, some space in the basement. Oh my god, I'd see these house centipedes all the time. You know, they're relatively harmless. They take care of roaches and other ter- other pests like termites that you don't want, but they are freaky looking and they run. Ugh. Ooh. Anyway, back to the shelf. They get away, but Gleek gets caught on a branch, and they go back for the monkey, who saves himself on a leaf, and then uses his tail as a propeller. So pretty ingenious there by Gleek. He did something useful for a change. Meanwhile, I was taking Superman forever because his heat vision is shrunken in power as well. So, um, eventually they get out. Seems like it takes half the episode, but they do get out. And now this is interesting. Superman and Wonder Woman steal the van and are driving it back to the Institute. 
She's working the pedals and Superman is steering. Kind of re- reminds me of the, uh, the Secret Life of Pets, where which is one of those movies that it seems to be out of my house over and over again, thanks to the kids. Especially the baby. It's one of the few things she'll watch. But the dog, uh, Max, works the pedals while the rabbit steers. Kind of the same thing. And now we've got a car, car chase. And when everything... When you're this size, everything is adventure. And when you're this size, everything is an adventure because Batman and Robin now have to scale the steps along with Aquaman and Wonder Woman. They actually have to use their bat ropes to walk up the steps as, as full-size Batman and Robin scale the size of the building. The side of the building. So the Super Friends find the machine is gone as the van pulls up. The guard says nothing and the van drives by with no one driving it. Here's a question. Wonder Woman and Superman had the machine in the van with them. Why didn't they restore themselves before going back to the Institute? The Super Friends show that even small, they can take on Strickland and tie him to a tall barrier, and the poor guard must think he's seeing ghosts. First, the van comes in driverless, and now Strickland is being tied up by seemingly nothing. So, after everything is restored, Wong wants to repay the Super Friends, and Superman says, use it unselfishly. And this gives the Super Friends a chance to uh, wax poetic about the awfulness of being greedy. And uh, Gleek found the uh, best way to use the machine. He shrunk himself and then ate a full-size banana, which is a good way to make the food go far. And we, the episode ends with a laugh. The uh, decoder word was shrink. And, well, you know, that was a you know, okay episode. The Super Friends definitely made things harder on themselves than they really needed to by shrinking themselves. But, you know, it makes for, you know, a kind of adventure. You know, they're fighting the ants and scorpions and dust devils. So, here's what it is, I guess. And now we're going to move on to... The Man-Beast of x Superman and Batman and Robin stop De- Dr. x from creating dangerous animals just for building strength in humans. And let the record show that the voice of Dr. x is provided by Gene Vanderpil, who is best known as the voice of Wilma Flintstone. Alright, so here we go. We have a meeting of the world's finest, Batman and Superman. And of course, being that this is the, the 70s, Robin will tag along as well. So it's Superman and Batman with Robin, the boy wonder. So we start off at the zoo with some shadowy figure who is very animal-like, is breaking in and freeing the animals. And, of course, they get a call from somebody telling them what's going on, and the New Orleans thing is happening right now, as the guy calls, and Batman and Robin and Superman arrive at the same time to check it out. And it makes me wonder, you know, the Hall of Justice is wherever it is, and Batman and Robin arrive at the same time Superman does. Does Superman fly extra slow to allow Batman and Robin, or any other slower super friend, to keep up? Anyway, Batman's back gadgets discover that whatever freed the animals was not human. So Batman and Robin find a panther-human hybrid, and Batman and Robin do the only thing they can. They follow it. So, Dr. Extra has created hybrids, and she's still in search for the perfect being. Her assistant cautions her that she may be going too far, but as most of these people go, she doesn't want to hear it. Now, there's a lot of a- animation mistakes in this episode when it comes to Batman's costume. In certain scenes, the yellow oval and black bat are inverted. Black oval and yellow bat, which doesn't actually look in that bad. It does look interesting with the... Uh, Negative space filled in, but I still prefer the black bat on the yellow. Actually, I prefer no yellow mobile personally, but this time they were using the yellow mobile, so it is what it is. So Batman and Robin track the panther to an old house and are attacked by uh, these mutants. And it's interesting seeing them try to fight the creatures without actually fighting them. Superman throws one, and Batman and Robin freeze one with glue. Superman's act could be considered violent, but he does throw them up into a chandelier, which is very cartoony. There is no physical violence that can happen on this planet that involves me throwing anybody into a chandelier. I just can't get that kind of elevation on an opponent. Especially not without the chandelier falling down. So Superman shows up in Dr. Extra's lab, and she sticks her animals on Superman as she escapes. And the kids get a brief moment of Superman saying he has to cage the animals without hurting them. And 
Then he lifts the floor and they magically slide back into their cages. Again, another non-violent solution to uh, animals that really don't know any better than just doing uh, their master's bidding. So her night is not a going according to plan, though. As Dr. Exra announces that she will continue her experiment, and Batman and Robin show up in the back of the boat, and then as she announces she will run the boat onto the quicksand. Just as she makes that proclamation, Superman comes up from under and lifts the boat away. Now, a few weeks later, when the Super Friends have restored the animals to their proper form, Batman marvels about how they were on two legs a few weeks ago, and Robin muses about the possibility of working with the Wolfman, to be Wolfman and Robin. Even in his musings, Robin still places himself as second fiddle. Thanks to the Justice League computers, we were able to reverse the process of Dr. Extra's experiments and return all of the animals back to normal. Just think, a few weeks ago, this wolf was running around on two feet. Too bad he's back to normal. We'd have made a great team, Wolfman and Robin. <laughs> We'd have the Wolf Cave and Wolf Cables and the Wolfmobile and the Wolf... As he's talking about a Wolf Cave and a Wolfmobile, never a Robin Cave or a Robin Mobile. A decent episode with our world's finest team. Now we're going to move on to Prejudice. The Wonder Twins saved the lives of two bigoted kids who were trying to hurt a black man. I'll bet you know where this is going. This is going to tackle racism in the 1970s. And before we do that, we get our safety tip from Wonder Woman. She teaches uh, two kids to not eat poisonous plants growing in the backyard. So now we're going to have a not at all uh, subtle lesson in racism as it's presented in 1977. we got two black teenagers, Rick and Linda, they're having car trouble. Rick's car is overheating, as evidenced by the steam emerging from the hood. Now we've got two white kids, Leon and Tony, trying to keep the black people out of the neighborhood. Rick is hopeful the bikers can't help them out, but insist instead they try to run Rick over, literally, with, with their motorcycles. They call Rick a trespasser and threaten him, and Rick is up to the challenge and calls them out. So, we've got a bunch of racists. You know, we're still seeing some of this stuff going on in Certain places, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. And obviously, there is no fight between uh, the white guys and the black kids. Like, you still can't have any kind of violence on these shows. Uh, There's only the threat of a fight, not an actual fight. So meanwhile, the twins are having lunch, and Gleek peels a pickle like a banana, because that's something I needed to see. Now, uh, the chase has gone six stories up into a construction site. I'm not sure why Rick ran up here, because there's nowhere to go, but he did. So now Tony and Leon are about to fall, and Rick tries to help them. One of them falls, and Zan shows up and saves him. Jaina turns into a brontosaurus and saves the other. Yay. So Leon and Tony literally learn that being prejudiced is stupid. and makes people do stupid things. True story, as it's continuing to make people do. Otherwise sane people do stupid things. Just saying, sorry folks. It is what it is, right? Now let's move on to Tibetan Raiders. Superman and the Flash stop a group of raiders from hijacking the down jetliner in Tibet. So, Aquaman is going to teach us a magic trick with a disappearing glass before we start our proceedings. Now, this episode, we have Superman and the Flash, two of my favorites, and I'm missing the Flash something awful in Super Friends. I can't wait until he's a more regular fixture of the show. I do appreciate any other members of the original Justice League seeing him on the show. Now, believe it or not, as we end this second season, it's only the second appearance of the Flash. So as far as the episode goes, you have a plane that's crashed in Tibet. The miracle that no one died, but, you know, the episode is still young. My first question when I look at the scene of the super friends from behind is, why is Flash's costume showing butt crack? I thought this was a kid's show. And what's it made out of? Does Flash's costume really need a line right there? You don't see it on anybody else. Either way, Superman and Flash are going to check this out as they are the two fastest members of the team. 
And I like that image of Flash running around the drawing of the Earth, kind of uh, like a blur. So now there are here are a group of raiders. Uh, one of the passengers thinks they're rescuers, but they finally get the plane door closed when someone recognizes that they recognizes that they're raiders. But it's not stopping them. Here comes Superman and the Flash. Hopefully that'll stop them. Now the raiders make off with the jet's tail, and the front of the plane is buried under an avalanche. Superman deals with the raiders very quickly, and now here comes Flash, who reverses the raiders' rope. The Superman gets the info out of the raiders by flying them into the sky and doing some loop-de-loops. And... Well, the raiders create another avalanche, hoping to bury Superman and the Flash, but Superman catches it and turns it into a giant snowball and throws it back at the raiders, while the Flash shovels out a plane in a speed, which I would love to be able to shovel my driveway. So, the pilot thanks the super friends, uh... And give, that gives Flash the opportunity to make a few Flash puns. Thank you, Super Friends. Without your help, we would never have made it. I think it'll be a long time before those Tibetan Raiders bother anyone again. Right. And if you ever need us, we'll be back in a Flash. Yeah, that was a good episode. I had some nice adventure, good Flash and Superman action. With their similar speeds, I think they work well together. And before we move on, we got a health message from Superman reminding us to dress for the elements. It's pretty hot today where I live, so make sure you wear shorts or short sleeves so you're keeping it as cool as possible. Yes. That said, I'll take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then we'll come back with The Mummy of Nazca. Hang around, folks. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it, and now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, make ours Marvel. All right, welcome back, folks. And also a reminder that all the episodes I'm covering in this segment are, were originally broadcast on November 26, 1977. And we're going to start with The Mummy of Nazca. And all of our synopses are brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com your number one source for Superman information on the web. A 10,000-year-old mummy is awakened by Professor Rudolf Karloff, a greedy archaeologist bent on finding the greatest power source in the universe. With the help of the mummy, Karloff steals three special objects needed to get that power. The first is the Pyramid of the Incas, stolen from an estate just outside Paris. The second is a special obelisk, stolen from the Bombay Express train. And here, the Wonder Twins are kidnapped by a mummy. The last is the Circles Within a Circle Pieces, stolen from a restaurant in Hong Kong. The twins are rescued in Hong Kong, but must be Korloff and the mummy in Nazca, Peru, where the power source is. Korloff is stopped, and the, and the mummy, who's actually an ancient astronaut, takes the power source back to his own planet. Professor Korloff was a brilliant archaeologist, but he forgot one thing, that there are two ways to approach a career, honestly 
and dishonestly. He also forgot that using knowledge for evil can only lead to eventual failure. What's Gleek want with that computer tape? Maybe he wants to see if the computer can locate mummies from his own planet. <laughs> well, it looks as if the computer found at least one Gleek mummy. So, we're going to get a mummy episode, because you always need a good mummy episode in a superhero cartoon. Let's go through it together and see if this actually is one. So, the mummy casing is said to contain an ancient astronaut. Apparently, uh, Clark Kent is there covering the story for the Daily Planet, or for... I believe he's back at the Daily Planet at this point, and not working for WGBS uh, TV News, but I could be wrong. So, we've got this guy uh, sneaking around, and now we've got a museum guard making his rounds, and this guy from... And we've seen this guy earlier kind of sneaking around. He opened the test tube that emits some kind of smoke. And the mummy has come to life. And he's drawing out the mummy to follow him. And apparently, uh, due to his uh, smoke here, the mummy is Korloff's to command. So, after their pizza, the twins encounter the mummy and it scares Gleek into a garbage pail. Jaina becomes a gorilla, which may be useful. And Zan becomes the wall of ice, which is pretty useless. Now, I can do with a lot of the mummy-mummy jokes. I'm not sure what the strength of 1,000 daddies is, but... Jaina does use that to describe the, uh, the strength of the mummy. I guess that's a thousand, the strength of a thousand men. So this time, the uh, twins are going to give the exposition, and, oh, never mind, here's the phone call. It's giving us some video image of the mummy tearing up the street. Superman, instead of going out and doing something about it, decides to investigate the man who's with the mummy. And the man is Rudolf Karloff, which is definitely a reference to Boris Karloff, the ancient uh, mummy actor from the... Uh, Universal Monster Days. And then he wrapped his steel fence around us like it was tinfoil. Holy wild stories. That couldn't be the museum's mummy. He's thousands of years old. I'm afraid it is, Robin. We've just received a report that the mummy is missing. The Trouble Alert Computer. The mummy got away. If we can identify that man who was with the mummy, we may find a clue to what they're up to. I'll rewind the Justice League monitor tape and zoom in on him. Now to run the freeze frame through the computer for a readout. <laughs> Professor Rudolf Korloff, archeologist. Whereabouts unknown. It looks like the next move is up to Korloff and Nazca. So Karloff wants the mummy to bring him the treasure of the Incas, a noble cause for a thousand-year-old mummy. So the mummy takes the Golden Pyramid right out of the guy's office in France, and the super friends have now waited for the mummy to be long gone before going to Paris. Fortunately for them, it's a very slow walker, and it's still carrying the giant pyramid. Obviously, it identifies Superman as a threat, and it throws a, a bus and then the Eiffel Tower to distract Superman. And there's a brief moment of the crowd cheering Superman's achievement, which... It's great to see. That's not something you see enough in uh, Superman movies uh, or any movie featuring Superman nowadays. It's nice to see that the public is uh, appreciative of Superman's efforts. You know, it goes a long way to what Dave uh, mentioned in his letter that I read at the opening of the show. Now, Superman, however, <clears throat> could have used his super hearing to find the mummy, but he doesn't. And we're not getting a very good showing for Superman in this episode. Just saying. So this historian, or whatever he is, told a super friend that the pyramid is 
the Pyramid of the Incas, and they give the super friends the lowdown on the other objects. It is known as the Pyramid of the Incas, one of the three ancient articles found in South America at the turn of the century. Do all these articles have something to do with ancient astronauts? We, somehow. The other two articles are this obelisk and these odd circles within a circle piece. Madame Gondali of Bombay University has the obelisk. The other is in Hong Kong. But nobody seems to know exactly where. I bet Professor Korloff does. We'll have to split up again. Aquaman and I will check out Hong Kong. Right. The rest of us will head for Bombay. One is in Bombay and the other in Hong Kong. Batman guards the obelisk, even though it's on its way to New Delhi, and this isn't a bad plan as Wonder Woman disguises herself, disguises herself as the museum curator, but Karloff sees right through the disguise. Not sure how he can tell who it is, but he does. The Batman and Robbers don't do a very good job of hiding themselves. Batman is supposed to be all about stealth, but he's just sitting there in plain sight. So Karloff un- uncouples the car from the rest of the train that Batman and Robin are in, and it goes down the mountain away from the uh, train that's moving forward. So the mummy stops the train as Karloff makes his move on the obelisk. And Wonder Woman is using, tries to lure in the mummy into a special car, but it doesn't work. Jaina wants to become a great big snake, but accidentally she becomes a garter snake, which is not a, it's a very small snake, completely ineffective. You know, it's the kind of snake that you might see in your garage if you live in the country or something. A very little, uh, small black snake, harmless to humans, and again, very tiny. And it's completely ineffective against his mummy. So, Gleek tries to help by kicking Nasca in the shins, but that doesn't do any damage at all. It'll do some damage to me if it kicked me in the shins, but not to this mummy. So now, how long does it take to, from Karloff to get from Hong Kong from Paris? You would think they'd be able to intercept him long before he gets to Hong Kong. And so anyway, he gets the third obel- obelisk and a glowing rocket, which is the greatest power ever known to man is inside the uh, the orange object. The friends show up and the army throws some uh, stuff at him. And Superman keeps throwing it back. Then this goes on for far too long. Karloff tries to run away and Batman and Robin deploy a tank. And then Aquaman leaps onto Karloff's helicopter. So Batman reels in Karloff with his rope that's attached to his tank and kind of reels it in like a fishing rod would. Ironic, he's uh, reeling in something that Aquaman, the king of the sea, is attached to. So Superman points out that Karloff forgot that he can pursue a career either honestly and dishonestly. And obviously here, Karloff has chosen dishonestly. And Wonder Woman points out that being evil never gains. You know, kind of a play on that crime doesn't pay uh, philosophy. So not much really to this episode. Uh, basically, the Super Friends chasing uh, this guy across the planet. This guy and his a man and his money. You know, kind of straight up adventure. Not much to really sink your teeth into. So let's move on to Frozen Peril. Aquaman and Superman defeats the uh, Sculpin's plants who freeze all the world's water and sell it to desert areas. So we start off with the boat commanded by this fish-like creature. His uh, plan is to freeze the world's oceans because he wants to sell the oceans to people living in desert climates. So with his freeze ray, just about everything at the surface is stopped at its tracks. Now all the super friends are at the Hall of Justice, but apparently this is only important enough for Superman and Aquaman to handle. I guess uh, Batman and Wonder Woman and the twins have better things to do. Wash their tights, perhaps. I'm not sure how uh, Aquaman's jet ski works on the ice, so Superman and Aquaman uh, get reports of a strange ship moving on the ice. Right, Superman. And just before everything froze, we picked up a fast-moving object on radar. I wonder what it was. We'll find out. It must be frozen in the water somewhere. Ah, but that's the funny thing. After the water froze, it was still moving. And heading south. The only thing south of here is Jungle Island and Storm Island. That may be where it went. I'll check out Storm Island, Aquaman. You investigate the other. 
And Superman looks really comfortable on the ship. It's, apparently, he took his boots off <laughs> for some reason. The animators forgot to draw them, and it looks like Superman is there in his blue stocking feet. It looks like he's wearing blue leggings instead of his red boots. Like I said, man is still looking very comfortable on this, on this uh, ship. Now, Aquaman finds the Sculpin's ship near the Jungle Island. Apparently, Aquaman has encountered this guy before, but instead, as he recognizes Sculpin and calls him by name, but instead, Aquaman gets netted, and after some impressive swinging, gets out and takes care of the Sculpin's henchmen. However, since this is a team-up episode, Aquaman is going to fail and gets frozen in a big block of ice. So now, the Sculpin's boat is going to turn into a helicopter. Now, at this time as he chases, Superman comes up empty, but at least the animators have returned his boots to him. Superman, I guess he put his shoes back on after he left the ship. So, alright, so now the Sculpin gets some ice out of the ocean, and he kind of cuts a big rectangular piece out of the uh, Pacific Ocean. That's where, that's where this story is taking place. And Superman notices him, and he finds that Aquaman's been captured. So apparently Superman is going to stay out of sight until it's time to make a rescue. Calling for backup is not allowed in this story, being that it's just a team-up. So the Sculpin lowers some ice onto the Gobi Desert in China. I guess he's trying to uh, instill some water into an obviously waterless uh, by a jeep area. The Sculpin calls it an ocean transaction. And he won't let the Super Friends stop his plans. Oh no, he won't. And I don't even know what this plan is except to make more ocean. Who's living in the Gobi Desert that they are buying ocean? Superman re- reverses Sculpin's electrical thingy, and then Aquaman chases the Sculpin and summons, what well, you know it, a whale to catch the Sculpin. And then Superman takes a page out of the Sculpin's book and freezes the ocean water and returns it back where it came from. He probably freezes it into a giant rectangle, and the rectangle fits uh, right back in place. And Superman observes that the Sculpin should have known better than to try to solve the Gobi Desert water issues. Sculpin shouldn't have tried to get rich by taking advantage of the desert country's water problems. I hope he learns that only through honest efforts can problems be solved without creating new ones. Again, I'm not necessarily sure what the Sculpin was trying to accomplish, who was going to buy the ocean from it, but I guess somebody was. Now, you know, not a bad episode other than the uh, weird uh, plot. Good adventure, nice chase. Superman and Aquaman both had enough to do, so decent episode. Just a good way to entertain yourself for about seven or eight minutes. Now we're going to move on to Dangerous Prank. Three kids scare a friend at a ski log, intending to have Bigfoot attack her while she's skiing. When she crashes and can't be found, the kids have to call on the Wonder Twins to rescue her. So before that, though, we get a safety lesson from Aquaman who teaches kids not to play on construction sites. Good advice. Now, this idiot is going to scare Linda dressed in in a gorilla suit. Well, actually, he said that he's Bigfoot. Linda wants to make another run on the ski slope, and the other guy signals Bigfoot, who scares Nancy so that she loses her concentration, and she goes over a cliff and gets caught in some falling snow. Poor Nancy, just because this guy wants to get his rocks off uh, dressed as a giant gorilla. Now Steve realizes his mistake as soon as Linda gets out of control, but you know what? The ski slope is nowhere for that kind of prank. I'll be honest, the ski slope is no place for me either. I have, uh, I am not a fan of... Uh, Hurtling down a mountain uncontrollably onto, uh... Now, the only thing I like to do with snow is shovel it. I don't really like to do that. <clears throat> I am more of a summer outdoors person than I am a winter outdoors person. Clearly, I live in the wrong climate, as it is winter. It feels like half the year sometimes. So, meanwhile, the call interrupts, uh, Zan's losing a ping-pong game to Gleek, who apparently can swing five paddles at once with his tail, which is a sight to see as he curls his tail around five, uh, different paddles. So, as they're searching, Jaina becomes a bloodhound and searches for Nancy. And Zan becomes a snowball, and he crashes into a pile of snow, and freeing Nancy, who, you know, it's a little cold now. Understandable, she was underneath a whole bunch of snow. So, Steve has learned not to be a stupid ass and prank someone while they're going down a mountain at a high rate of speed on a ski slope. I'm not sure you need to go to this drastic situation to learn that, but apparently Steve, because he's a moron, needed 
to learn that lesson in this fashion. Linda should just shut her down the slope without any skis, and that'll take care of everything else. Now, move on to finish off this episode with Cable Car Rescue. Wonder Woman and a flying atom save a cable car stranded in a storm in the Rocky Mountains. Before that, Aquaman teaches us how to turn a milk carton into a piggy bank. Nice to know our arts and crafts for the day. So here is uh, Wonder Woman and the Atom. And these skiers are leaving the mountaintop due to a thunderstorm. Now Wonder Woman lets out a rope from her plane and the Atom scales down to grab it. So Wonder Woman has them dangling as this other guy falls. And the Atom, who is making his second appearance in the Super Friends, as you recall, he also appeared in the Energy Mass episode. So the cable breaks and, there goes, and the car goes again. And this time it's shredding the cable. If only Superman were here. So the Atom ties uh, the cable in a mountain, holds the car there, and then it snaps. Everybody runs out, and I just noticed that one of these passengers is wearing a Charlie Brown shirt. So, they save the cable car. I don't really recall any great use of the Adam's powers. Something tells me I was dozing off during this episode. I don't remember a whole lot about it. But whatever. Adam and Wonder Woman save the cable car. Wonder Woman learns that you have to watch what rocks you grab. She almost uses the wrong one to help save everything. Now, the episode ends with the skier stacking Wonder Woman and the Adam, and the diminutive hero makes a short joke and moves on. Next time, all new Super Friends Hour coverage will conclude with Will the World Collide and The Ghost? If you want to send feedback to the show, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. And you can also find me on Fear of the Walking Dead cast with my co-hosts, Scott McGregor, Brian, and, and Brian and Beth Hughes. We're on a little bit of a hiatus until August when uh, Season 4 of Fear of the Walking Dead returns. So, until next time, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the two true freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.